Do you love the smell of a turp? The feel of a kidney at open nephrectomy? The sound of a Q-max over 30 mils per second? The sight of a renal stone disintegrating at the tip of your laser fibre? Or the taste of a beer at the end of a difficult cystectomy and neobladder? Then delight your five senses with So You're Gonna. So You're Gonna, the practical urology podcast for those who love urology. Hi there and welcome. I'm Joseph Iskia. This is our new podcast series called So You're Gonna, and it's from the team at Talking Urology, where we are helping doctors and allied practitioners develop a deeper understanding of the literature to ensure we apply the right evidence to the right patient. So you're gonna do a transurethral resection of a bladder tumour, or a TURBT for short. Today, Nick Campbell and I, with the help of international TURBT expert, Dr. Lucas Lusuardi, are going to bring the literature to life and take a look at all the latest evidence around the TURBT and give you some key numbers that you can use when chatting to your next patient or performing what is a very common urological procedure. Thanks, Joseph. I'm Nick Campbell, a urologist from Melbourne with a special interest in bladder cancer. It's a pleasure to be here today chatting about TURBTs with you and let's introduce our international special guest. I'm Lucas Luzuardi, working at the University Hospital in Salzburg. It's called Paracelsus Medical University. Thanks, Lucas. We'll hear some great tips and tricks from Lucas throughout the podcast. There's a lot to cover in this podcast, and we hope, as usual, that we keep it interesting enough to keep you awake on your drive to or from work. These podcasts are only possible with the support of our sponsors. This TURBT podcast is brought to you by Carl Stortz, and we will be back after a quick word. This podcast is sponsored by Carl Stortz Endoscopy, the manufacturers of Autocon 3, the latest in diathermy technology offering a wide range of bipolar electrodes for standard TERP, enucleation, vaporization, and on block for bladder lesion resection. Contact your Carl Stortz representative for more information. So, listeners, where and when did it all begin with the endoscopic management of bladder tumours? Well, we're used to the Americans telling us that they invented everything, and in this case, they actually did. A gentleman called Edwin Beer was born in 1876 and grew up in the Big Apple, New York City, before studying in Prague, Vienna and Berlin. After his European adventures, he finally returned home and settled down to become the chief of GU surgery at Mount Sinai in New York. Edwin made several important contributions to urology throughout his illustrious career, but none more valuable than his landmark study on the fulguration of papillary bladder tumours published way back in 1908. That's the same year they started construction on the Titanic, but unlike the Titanic, the TURBT has avoided all obstacles and is now more than 100 years old. I think that we would all acknowledge that Edwin deserves to be commended because cystoscopic fulguration of bladder tumours using high-frequency diathermy is still practised today in urology worldwide. I think we would all agree that transurethral resection is an essential endoscopic urological procedure for diagnosis, staging and treatment of bladder cancer. And in this podcast, we're going to very quickly recap the goals and key steps in performing a TURBT and something that I think is very important, which is a good operation report, which I think of all the operations we do, the TURBT report is probably the most important for reasons that we will elaborate on. And then we can get on to the interesting stuff of the new technologies and enhanced imaging modalities that are out there to help us improve our TURBTs. So let's get started. The most recent EAU guidelines also go into some detail on useful techniques and strategies for resecting different sized tumours during a TURBT. 
If possible, a papillary tumour less than one centimetre should be resected in one piece or an on-block resection. For tumours that are greater than one centimetre, this isn't always possible, but there are advocates out there who are doing it. Lucas is a big proponent of the on-block resection, and he thinks it has a big future. Well, I find that the unblock procedure, which is not a new procedure, has now the potential to replace uh, the conventional TRB for smaller lesion. And when I say small, it's under five centimeters in diameter. So Joseph, do you have any tips for preventing the scary obturator reflex or jerk, as it's referred to by our North American colleagues? That's right. You don't want a jerk at each end of the resectoscope. So let's look at some tricks that we can use to minimize risks on the bladder side. Firstly, three useful evidence-based preventative surgical techniques were described in a recent review by Panagoda and are as follows. Reduce the diathermic current used during resection. Use bipolar diathermic current instead of monopolar current. A distended bladder brings the lateral bladder wall closer to the obturator nerve, so avoid overfilling of the bladder. Other level 4 evidence strategies based on expert opinion, or probably more accurately bitter experience, have also been suggested and include resecting the tumour on thinner slices, laser resection, staccato resection applying the energy in small bursts, reversing the polarity of the diathermy current and changing the site of the inactive electrode, i.e. the diathermy plate to the opposite hip or leg. This issue of monopolar versus bipolar is certainly a polarising debate. We asked Lucas if he thought there was any difference. Well, it's very drastic. I think monopolar should already be being buried because uh, especially for bladder cancer, with the new generator we have on the market, we just cut simply better with bipolar. We're much more in control of our resection and that means also the pathologist is going to be happier because your histology is going to look better. And does it reduce the risk of obturator kick? The kick is still there. It's probably a little bit reduced. What has been proven by many studies, and it's already in the guidelines, is that it is probably producing less complication. And by saying complication, I'm talking about bleedings, blood retention clots, uh, and uh, probably less perforation. Okay, those are the surgical manoeuvres, but now let's take a look at the evidence-based anaesthetic techniques to reduce the risk of obturator jerk. These include... The use of neuromuscular blockade which necessitates the need for a general anaesthetic within an endotracheal tube to secure the airway. Selective blockade of the obturator nerve by using either non-depolarizing or depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agents. That's a nice list for the exam and a good refresher for the rest of us still learning in the training course of life. Now let's get on to one of the hottest topics in the field of modern TURBT and ask the big question. What are the practical advantages of the enhanced endoscopic visualisation techniques compared to standard white light cystoscopy to help detect urothelial cancers? We've all heard about techniques like blue light cystoscopy, also known as photodynamic diagnosis, or narrowband imaging, and now the new spectral enhancement systems. But Nick, what are the practical real-world advantages? In brief, photodynamic diagnosis, or blue light cystoscopy, is performed using ultralight after intravesical installation of 5-aminolevulinic acid, ALA, or hexaminolevulinic acid, or HAL. An important advantage with HAL is that installation time of only one hour before cystoscopy is required, compared to two to four hours for 5-ALA, and both agents are equally effective. 
A meta-analysis in European Urology by Berger et al. in 2013 showed that HAL-assisted blue light cystoscopy detected 15% more TA tumours compared to white light alone. One important note here is that blue light cystoscopy should be used in conjunction with white light cystoscopy, not as a replacement. Absolutely right, Joseph. We also know that fluorescence-guided biopsy and resection are more sensitive than white light cystoscopy for CIS. One meta-analysis showed that photodynamic diagnosis had a higher sensitivity than white light endoscopy for detecting bladder cancer at biopsy, at 93% for blue light compared to 65% for white light. I think that these percentages definitely show a clear advantage with fluorescence cystoscopy compared to normal white light cystoscopy. There appear to be a lot of advantages to the use of photodynamic diagnosis with blue light cystoscopy, but I know that the number of centres that use it routinely would be in the minority. We asked Lucas what he thought on photodynamic diagnosis. Well, I love PDD. I have been using PDD in the last 15 years and uh, it has been improved in quality and uh, in uh, technology. Now we have a very good product on the market and uh, you just see lesions better. We know that with white light cystoscopy, we miss up to 20% of the tumors. We miss CIS possibly, and that's already proven that PDD is more sensitive to detect CIS and we probably reduce our recurrences. So why don't use it? 15 years, Lucas is well and truly ahead of the pack. But even he doesn't use it for every case because the dye is actually quite expensive in a busy bladder cancer practice. Therefore, we asked Lucas what cases does he think we could get the greatest value for our PDD. I will tell you what I am doing in my department. I use it when I meet a patient for the first time with his first tumour in order to check if he has other areas beside of the tumour which is probably also clear with white light. So I want to exclude other lesions. And then I reuse uh, PDD in all uh, situations when I have a multifocal tumor, because it's very easy if you have many tumors to miss some areas. You won't see them because you have so much uh, tissue floating around the bladder. Probably you get confused by many pieces floating and you can miss. Next I asked him, when do you think we don't need PDD? Probably if it's a low-grade, low-recurrence tumour, singular tumour, recurring after two, three years, which uh, has always been the same uh, in the last decade, I would say. Probably there you don't need PDD, you don't need the truser, but how often is this situation? Now moving on to narrowband imaging, or NBI. NBI is different to blue light cystoscopy in that it is an optical image enhancement technology that depends on the use of two short wavelength light beams of 415 nanometers blue and 540 nanometers green. The light penetrates the superficial bladder tissues and is strongly absorbed by hemoglobin, so it greatly increases the visibility of capillaries and delicate tissue surface structures by reinforcing contrast of the bladder surface tissues. Back in 2008, Harry Hare compared the effectiveness of NBI with conventional white light cystoscopy in 103 patients with recurrent superficial bladder cancer. He found that the detection rate of recurrent bladder tumour was 87.4% with white light cystoscopy compared with 100% with NBI cystoscopy. So we are looking at a 13% improvement for narrowband imaging. The big advantage here is that it is logistically easier than photodynamic diagnosis. You don't have to give an expensive dye one hour before your operation. 
Another great new technology that does not require early preparation with a die is specific to the Carl Storz equipment. They have developed the Image 1S. The addition of different colours like orange or violet to the image obtained by reflected blue and green spectrum light offers three different viewing options depending on needs in various clinical situations. There are four different modes you can use. Standard, which is white light, chroma, which enhances the colour differences in the image, and then Spectra A and Spectra B. Spectra A mode is based mainly on the green and blue wavelengths, and Spectra B, which is similar to Spectra A with a reduction in the dominance of the red wavelengths. It sounds like a new brand of superheroes. We asked Lucas what he used. I prefer Spectra B because uh, I mainly use this uh, Image 1S technology when I am uh, doing unblock resection because I want to see the margins of uh, the tumor. Obviously, I do a white light cystoscopy. If I have PDD, then I do PDD. And off on the suspicious area, I also look with Image 1S and especially using Spectra B because I see vascularity better. So pathologic vascularity helps us uh, to detect areas. And uh, especially if you want to do an unblock, you need to be sure that you start your resection in a healthy part of the mucosa. So vascularity is very important. You have to understand it very good. Thanks, Lucas. They are some great tips. Image 1S is currently at the early clinical study stage of investigation, so I'm looking forward to seeing how their results turn out. We have now finished performing our perfect TURBT. We looked good with the resectoscope, there were no jerks apart from the ones we already knew about, and we didn't miss a tumour with our optimised visualisation techniques. But then how often do we let ourselves down with a poor operation report? How many times have you been sitting in your multidisciplinary meeting or tumour board and you are trying to decide what to do next when you bring up the operation report? It says, bladder cancer right wall, TURBT, 20 French catheter. Then there you are in the MDM, trying to risk stratify the patient and guessing the size, the multiplicity, were there other red patches suspicious for CIS, was resection complete, etc. I don't think there's any operation in urology where the operation report is more important to help direct further management. So Nick, tell us what are the 10 key points we should all be noting in our operation reports? According to the godfather of bladder cancer, Harry Hare, a high quality TURBT operation report should include the following 10 essential pieces of information. Number of tumours, a description of the largest tumour, the characteristics of each tumour, whether they be sessile or papillary, recurrent versus primary tumour, presence of CIS or not, tumour stage clinically, bimanual findings, whether the resection was complete on visual inspection, whether there is detrusor muscle visible in the resection base, and whether there is evidence of a bladder perforation. That is great, and I think a lot of us have room for improvement here, or it could be just me. Now listeners, we're almost there. You have written an operation report that some are calling the 155th Shakespearean sonnet, and now you have to decide whether you are going to give post-operative intravesical chemotherapy, such as mitomycin C or gemcitabine, after a TURBT. Well, Joseph, it is widely believed that tumour cell implantation immediately after TURBT is responsible for many early recurrences, and this has been used to explain why initial tumours are usually found on the floor and lower sides of the bladder wall, but recurrences are often near the dome. For this reason, intravesical chemotherapy to kill cancer cells before implantation is especially recommended. 
typically with mitomycin C or gemcitabine. Joseph, when do you usually give mitomycin C after a TURBT? Good question, Nick. A single dose of immediate post-operative intravesical mitomycin C or epirubicin or thiotopa or doxorubicin for superficial bladder cancer is associated with a recurrence rate of 37% after three and a half years, compared to a recurrence of 48% without. In statistical terms, this equates to a 12% absolute risk reduction and a 39% relative risk reduction in favour of immediate installation of chemotherapy. This comes from a meta-analysis by Sylvester in 2004 on 1,476 patients. So listeners, make sure to get the mitomycin C in quickly. Unless, of course, you have concerns about a bladder perforation or heavy hematuria. These two scenarios are contraindications for installing mitomycin C into the bladder. For intravesical gemcitabine, it has been interesting to note that Messing et al. published a randomised controlled trial in May 2018 in JAMA to determine whether immediate post-TURBT intravesical installation of gemcitabine reduces recurrence of suspected low-grade non-muscle invasive urothelial cancer compared with saline in 383 patients. Their findings showed that 35% of patients in the gemcitabine group had a recurrence within four years compared to 47% in the saline group. Our astute listeners would note that that is also a 12% reduction, with a number needed to treat to prevent a recurrence of 8. So it would appear we've made our way from the start to the end of the TURBT, but there is one more area that I want to cover before we sign off, and that is the issue of the positive cytology but negative imaging and cystoscopy. We know that the specificity of cytology is almost 100%. So we know that there's something there, but we cannot see it yet. Where do we go looking? The great inner torment of our time. To be T or not to be T? That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of podium presentation questions, or to take arms against a sea of peer reviewers and by opposing publish. To comfort, to cut, no more. And by a cut to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, i.e. reduce recurrences, progression, death. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to comfort, to cut. To cut, perchance to cure, aye, there's the rub. Uh, Well, Joseph, uh, poor Shakespeare there. But let's get back to our modern-day anthology of poetry, the EAU guidelines in this situation. As recommended, I take biopsies from normal-looking mucosa, the trigone, bladder dome, right and left, and anterior and posterior bladder walls. When urine cytology is positive, or when high-risk exophytic tumour is expected. If equipment is available, I use fluorescence-guided biopsies. I also biopsy the prostatic urethra in cases of bladder neck tumour, when bladder CIS is present or suspected, when there is positive urine cytology without evidence of tumour in the bladder, or when abnormalities of the prostatic urethra are visible. Okay, all very good points. But in the scenario of the prostatic urethra, does it matter where the biopsy is performed, or can it be done in any location? The guidelines would suggest that the biopsy is taken from any abnormal areas in the prostatic urethra and from the precrolicular area, which is between 5 and 7 o'clock positions for those who are rusty on their anatomy. And this should be done using a loop resection. In non-muscle invasive tumours, when stromal invasion is not suspected, a cold cut biopsy with forceps is sufficient. 
It is also important to refer the specimens from different biopsies and resection fractions to the pathologist in separate containers and to label them separately. I completely agree, Nick. Now, Joseph, I think we should discuss the situations and after what time frame that a second TURBT should be performed. It's a good idea, Nick. EAU guidelines recommend a second TURBT in the following situations. If the initial TURBT is incomplete, or if there's no muscle in the specimen after an initial resection with the exception of TA low-grade tumours, and for primary CIS. A second TURBT should also be performed for all T1 tumours and for all high-grade tumours. In terms of timing, I usually stick with EAU recommendations and perform a second TURBT within two to six weeks of the initial resection. During my second resection, I always make sure to resect the primary tumour site. Nick, do you have any data on the evidence for performing a second TURBT? Because a second anaesthetic after such a short period can be quite difficult in patients with comorbidities. Persistent disease after resection of T1 tumours is found in 33 to 55% of patients. In patients with initial diagnosis of TAG3 disease, that is high grade, tumour is found in approximately 40% of cases at second TURBT. These findings clearly demonstrate that the tumour is often understaged at initial resection. In terms of muscle invasion at second TURBT, the likelihood of an initial T1 tumour ranges from 4 to 25% and increases to 45% if there is no muscle in the initial resection. Additional caveats worth mentioning on the merits of a second TURBT are increased recurrence-free survival, improved outcomes after BCG treatment, and provision of additional prognostic information. Based on these facts and figures, I think we can safely say that a second TURBT is definitely recommended in these cases. Good numbers to know for your next multidisciplinary meeting. It is worth noting that some of those number ranges are pretty broad, and it has to do with the experience of the urologist doing the first resection. If you are doing one or two TURBTs per year, your risk of persistent disease after resecting a T1 tumour is 55%. If you do more than 50 per year, it drops to 33%. Same for the range of upstaging to muscle invasion, with a range of 4% to 25% for the less experienced. I have to admit that the one exception I make to the automatic re-resection is the small, single, high-grade TA tumour, where I am confident that I've completely resected the entire tumour. I do not perform a repeat TURBT in this instant because my pickup of persistent cancer is almost zero. Admittedly, I do do more than two TURBTs per year, and as Nathan Lorenchuk often feels the need to remind me after a good outcome, it's better to be lucky than good. Well, we're almost done, and we appreciate those of you who could not find the skip button on your smartphone. So let's finish by asking Lucas what is the number one tip he would give training urologists for a TURBT. Well, I would absolutely, especially if one resident is learning, absolutely use the technological imaging we have on the market, whatever company. I think it's very important because we know that experienced probably miss less tumors with white light. They are not having 100%, but probably they are close to that, especially if they're very experienced, they won't miss Uh, great problems. But a resident without help has absolutely to pick up all technologies, all helps that are available in order to start getting better and improve his quality, his skills. What's the number one mistake you think urologists regularly make? 
Well, for bladder cancer, to use monopolar, firstly, I'm very critical, I know. The second one is probably to overfill the bladder while doing resection. That's the two classical problems we see nowadays. But if you adopt bipolar, if you work with an iglesias system, you're never having a very filled bladder, and so you work with very good quality. What do you think is going to be the biggest change in TURBT over the next 10 years? Or what would you like to see? Well, what I personally would love to see, better vasculature. We see better neoplastic area because they capture hexvix, so we see them with PDD. My wish would be to see the mucosa with three-dimensional system in order not only to see the vasculature, but also the architecture of the tumor. I'm sure three-dimension would help also in bladder cancer and the endoscopic treatment of that. So it seems Lucas sees a day when we have an ultrasound in the tip of the resectoscope. So listeners, I think we've covered quite a lot in this podcast. We've touched on Edward Beer's pioneering TURBT that took place way back in 1908. We went through technological advances for diagnosing bladder cancer and also discussed the role of post-operative intravesicle chemotherapy. Other important topics that we covered were the 10 key points in the operation report, to BT or not to BT and when to perform a re-resection after initial TURBT. So to recap our fast five facts for TURBT, Nick, what were they? Number one, the improved detection of cancers compared to white light with the advanced imaging, a 28% improvement from 65% up to 93% with photodynamic diagnosis with the dyes, and a 13% improvement with NBI or narrowband imaging from 87 to 100%. Number two, a single post-operative installation of mitomycin C or gemcitabine reduces recurrence by an absolute value of 12%. Fast fact three, the second TURBT detects persistent disease in around 40% of high-grade TA and up to 50% of T1 cancers. Fast fact four, second TURBT upstages initial T1 to muscle invasion in four to 25% of T1 disease and up to 45% if there was no muscle in the initial specimen. And fast fact five, remember, always look good when holding a resectoscope. Well, thanks a lot, Nick. That's a great fast five. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thanks, Joseph, for allowing me to talk on TURBTs. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Joseph Iskia, Nick Campbell, and our special guest, Lucas Lusuardi, written by Mark Quinlan, a specialist in chronic ocaldra and prostatitis. Professor Niall Davis and Joseph Iskia, produced by Joseph Iskia and Cara Webb. And special thanks to our sponsor of this episode, Carl Storz. It's German for 2020 vision. It's not really, but they do make some nice scopes, Joseph. So you're gonna. The practical urology podcast for those who love urology.